I am, my uh, podium is shrinking. I, I can do that. It'll just look funny. Is this high it's, my my Bible is too holy. It's just too heavy. Yeah, the, the Bible's just too heavy. So I'll put it on here for now. Don't worry, we'll pick it back up. Um, but I am grateful to be here with you all. And I want you guys to know that uh, Redeeming Grace has a great reputation in my experience in Columbia. When I, back in 2009, before we even started Riverside, Community Church. I remember meeting with a guy and hoping he might be part of our core team. And he said, nah, man, there's this great church in Greenville I drive up to. (laughs) And then you guys may remember Dave and Martha Rich. Uh, They used to drive from Columbia uh, to to, to worship with you all here. And so uh, your reputation is far and wide, and it is a good one. So you guys are doing something right. And, And I'm grateful to partner with you as we seek to plant Braden and um, that core group that's going to be going out of our church to plant in the northeast side of Columbia. When Matt first told me, hey, we want to partner with you guys. We, want to, we love the Greers. We want to get behind them. And we want to be part of that. I was so excited. And I knew that was a God thing. So I'm very grateful for your partnership. I know that um, you guys have been doing it longer and in many ways doing it better. And we want to learn from you and part, as we partner with you. So thank you guys for your kindness and your hospitality to me. This morning. Uh, this morning we will be in John's Gospel, as Matt noted. We'll be in John chapter 5. So if you would, open your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, just pull up your phone. Uh, and uh, you can download an app, and you'll have your Bible in a matter of minutes. But <clears throat> what we're going to be talking about this morning really is what I've called adventures in missing the point. It's one of the great themes of John's Gospel. And this whole trope or theme of missing the point is a very famous and common theme, particularly in our entertainment. Uh, There's something always inherently humorous about missing the point. One of my uh, favorite examples of uh, missing the point is from the film Dumb and Dumber. If you haven't seen it, it is a highbrow piece of art. But um, in that film, there's a famous exchange where... uh, the, the, I can't even remember uh, uh, Jim Carrey's character, but uh, he says to Mary, this woman he's been chasing across the country, he says, look, I've come a long way, Mary. I want you to level with me. What are the chances that a guy like you and a girl like me can get together? And she says, not good. And he says, well, what are we talking about? One out of a hundred? She says, more like one out of a million. And he says, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> yes. Right. Wonderful example of missing the point. Sometimes, however, missing the point is tragic. In our entertainment, we see this as well. Shakespeare was the king of tragedy as well as humor. And one of the, probably the, 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 the clearest example of tragically missing the point is Romeo and Juliet. Juliet is forced uh, by her family to marry this other man that's, that's been approved by the family. And she loves Romeo, who's on the wrong side of a family divide. And they, they're absolutely adamant that's not going to happen. So she, in her desperation, runs to her priest. Says, what do I do? And he says, I have this special potion. You drink it, it will mimic all the signs of death. And you will be essentially comatose. After your funeral, you can wake up and run away with Romeo, and no one will be the wiser. And I will let Romeo know of the plan. Well, of course, typical Shakespeare tragedy Romeo never gets the message. 
is there at the service, sees his beloved Juliet has passed away and is so overtaken with grief, drinks a vial of poison himself. And as he's dying, he sees her come up out of her slumber, her coma. And so he knows at the last minute that he missed the point. It's sad. It's grievous. And that's really the case here in John's gospel. There are definitely instances of where the crowds miss the point of what Jesus is saying, and it's humorous, but it's also tragic. So with that said, I'm going to read John 5, and it's going to be the entire chapter of John 5, not because we're going to cover the whole chapter. We're only going to be really looking at the first 18 verses, but for the sake of context and because reading the scripture is really the best part of the sermon. Amen? All right, so let's read uh, verses 1 through 47. Bear with me as we read this together. I'll be reading from the ESV. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. At once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man, had been he- the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whomever he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who hear, or sorry, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. 
and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and to those who have done evil the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I give is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? Do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would also believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for these scriptures because they do point us very clearly to the Son. And as, Lord, we As we dive into these scriptures this morning, I pray that we would not miss the point. Holy Spirit, open our eyes and our ears to see and hear and open our cool hearts to warmly receive you, Jesus, the point of all of this. And in whose mighty name we pray, amen. There's three points I just simply want to make this morning as we consider really the story of Jesus' healing of the paralytic or the invalid. The first is this. We see uh, those around him missing the point by, one, missing the sign itself. Two, they missed the point by missing the significance of the sign. And thirdly, they missed the point by missing what the sign signifies or, to put it more accurately, him whom the sign signifies. So with that roadmap, let's dive in to missing the sign, overlooking the signs. That's what happens here. It's comical, isn't it? This guy who had been uh, an invalid for 38 years, that's nearly as long as I've been alive, he has been completely incapacitated. And Jesus says to him simply, take up your bed and walk. That's all he does. He doesn't touch the man as far as we know. He doesn't, he doesn't create any kind of medicinal fix. He just says, get up and walk. And he does. And what's remarkable to the Jewish leadership isn't that this man is walking, but that he's carrying his bed on Sabbath. That's what's remarkable to them. 
They completely miss the sign. It's like me with my children so often. My sons, I have three boys, and they love to build things and create things. Unfortunately, they like to build things that are dangerous with tools they have no idea how to use, right? Like, Luke, you don't need the drill for that, son. Or they, when they create an art project, it's like every, like, you don't, why latex paint? You just, just use the crayons, man. You know, they get everything out of the shed they can, and they're like, Dad, look at what I made. And I'm thinking, look at the mess. Right? Parents don't care about creativity. We care about orderliness and cleanliness, just like the Pharisees. They don't care what happened to this guy. Their, their mind isn't there. Jesus came with, you know, we sing the song sometimes at Riverside, um, Lead on, O King Eternal. It says, not with drums uh, uh, loud rolling or, 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 or the sound of drums progressing and guns firing, but with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. And that was what marked Jesus' ministry. It was deeds of mercy and compassion. And for those who were compassionate and loved mercy, his signs were powerful, remarkable evidences of God. Surely this one is sent from God. But for those who were without compassion and mercy, those acts were easily overlooked and ignored. So much of John's gospel looks like Jesus is on trial, but really it's those who respond to his ministry who's on trial. The New Testament, uh, Dea Carson says, uh, the, the audiences in John's gospel are like the art critic who see a masterpiece and dismiss it as garbage. It's not the artwork that's been judged. And that's what's happening here. Even the very signs judge the Pharisees, judge the leadership. Then they will not only overlook them, but despise them later on. When Lazarus is miraculously uh, raised from the dead, they don't dispute it. They don't try to argue that it didn't really happen. Rather, they say, this is an embarrassment. We need to get rid of Lazarus. We need to kill him. That's where that entrenched unbelief goes. Talk about missing the point. But we also see in John's gospel people acknowledging the sign, but they completely miss the significance of the sign. Turn with me to chapter 4, where we see in the story right before the healing of the invalid, there's the healing of the official's son, another sign. John labels it the second sign in Cana. But just like the invalid himself seems oblivious to the significance of what's happened to him, that seems to be the case with the Galileans that Jesus returns to. He goes back from Jerusalem to Galilee in chapter 4 because he's getting too much negative attention in Jerusalem, and his hour is not yet. So he goes back home, and as he explains to his disciples, a prophet is without honor in his hometown, so I'm going to go to my hometown. And there he goes, and he's received warmly, and yet superficially. Look at verses 47 and following. A man, uh, in verse 46, it says, a man from Capernaum, about 24 miles away, an official whose son was ill, approaches Jesus when he's there in Cana. Verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to please come down, heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not 
believe. This official said to him, Sir, come down before my boy dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. There's a lot happening here. But the first remarkable point is this man, uh, this official, whether he's a Jewish official or Gentile, we don't know. But he travels a long distance to get healing for his own boy. And Jesus takes as an opportunity to rebuke not the man primarily, but the crowd. The Greek there is plural. He says, unless y'all see signs, y'all won't believe. That's what he says. And he's speaking to the crowds who they're eager to receive Jesus back in some sense. He's local boy makes it big, but they want to see Jesus because of the tricks he can do. They want a witch doctor. And so Jesus rebukes them and calls them to a deeper faith. Look, the signs aren't about the signs themselves. Do you know what they say? Do you know what they mean? And it's this pattern that John brings out again and again and again and again from the beginning of the gospel up to this point and throughout. It isn't enough to believe in the signs of Jesus. It, notice, the man believed without seeing the sign. Did you notice that? He believed Jesus' word. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. For John, that is always the critical point. Not they believed the sign, they believed the word Jesus said. And then when that miracle is confirmed, it says not only the official, but his whole household believed. We, just to give you an example of how this happens with this, earlier on in chapter 4 with the Samaritans. Remember the woman at the well? Jesus tells her everything she ever did. And she goes back to the crowd, to her city at Sychar in Samaria, and says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And the Samaritans come. And look what it says towards the end of chapter 4. In verse 40 and following. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed two more days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said, the, the, the recounting of this miraculous knowledge, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Or turn all the way back to chapter 2 with me, just to illustrate this important principle. In chapter 2, Jesus performs the first miracle in Cana. He turns water into wine. And look what the disciples' response is in verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. They believed because of the sign, but their faith wasn't yet enough. In the very next episode, Jesus cleanses the temple. He overturns tables, he breaks out a whip. And they ask, what sign do you give to do these things. And he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Well, no one knew what Jesus was talking about at that time. But jump to verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Then their faith connected the circuit was closed. Life flowed. It was essential 
that they believed his words. Contrast that with what is said of the crowds in Jerusalem in verse 23 in chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, which sounds awesome. Many believed when they saw the signs that he was doing. But look at verse 24. Jesus, on his part, however, did not entrust himself to them. And it's the same word in the Greek. It's like saying many trusted in him, in his name, because of the signs, but Jesus didn't trust them. Why? Because their faith was not sufficient. In our lingo, we'd say it wasn't saving faith. They believed the signs. They didn't believe in him. They didn't trust him. Jesus didn't trust himself to them. And then case in point is the story of Nicodemus. It says in verse 25 of chapter 2, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. The very next verse is, now there was a man of the Pharisees. Case in point, he comes to Jesus at night and says, we know that you're from God because no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus says to him, in effect, you don't know anything, Nicodemus. You don't know anything. You don't receive my word. You don't receive my testimony. So it is not enough that we believe or we receive Jesus's remarkable acts in our life. Faith comes from hearing the word. And apart from the word, that faith is never adequate. It's never enough. If the signs don't lead to faith in his word, the signs have not functioned for you the way they ought. You have missed the point. And so often our, we have our experiences with God, but our response to his word is something else. I think this is important for, for us who grew up in what has been called a Christian South. Or if you're from the Midwest, that is very similar, part of the Bible Belt. We have walked an aisle, we prayed a prayer, we got wet in the name of Jesus. But the question isn't, what has your experiences with Jesus been? The question is, what now is your response to his word? That is the critical point. Is our response to his word now obedience? He calls us to obey. Those who love me, obey me. Is it repentance? When he says repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Is repentance marking our life today? Is there fear of the Lord that we tremble joyfully but humbly in his presence? God says, I dwell, I am the high, high Lord above all, and I dwell with the humble and those who tremble at my word. Do we tremble at his word? Do we, do we, do we respond with faith in his many promises? His promises that if you trust in me, you are forgiven, you are covered, you are loved, you are approved, you are a child of God. Do we respond with that kind of rest-giving faith? Do we, re- do we respond with joy in his goodness that's revealed in his word? Do we respond with comfort in his tender mercies that are revealed in his word? Does this mark our experience before the word today?
we can also not only miss the significance of what the signs mean, what they point to, which is the word itself, the living word that gives life to us. The signs meant to have a confirming effect. The word went forth and is confirmed by signs. The signs aren't the point. They're to confirm the word. But the word itself isn't finally and ultimately about the word. It points to the signified, who is the signifier, Jesus Christ himself. It's, they speak of he who performs them, or as Jesus puts it here in John 5, verse 36, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me. They speak about me. The signs are all about me and who I am. And he says there, when they rebuke him for working on the Sabbath, he says, well, the Father works until this very day, and so do I, the Son. What does that mean? What does it mean that the Father works until this very day and so does Christ? What are the works of the Father? What are the works of Christ done, in, as he puts it, in the name of the Father? Well, again, all we have to do is look at the context of John. He answers that for us. Back in John chapter 4, he tells that woman at the well, when she brings up this age-old dispute, should we worship here, as the Samaritans say, at Mount Gerizim, or should we worship at Mount Zion, the way you Jews say? And Jesus says, woman, I tell you the truth. The day is coming, it is now here, when it will be in neither mountain that you'll worship. My Father is looking for true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth, for God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit. That is what the Father is doing in the world. He is searching out true worshipers. And what is it that Jesus is doing there at that well in the middle of the afternoon, talking to a Samaritan immoral woman? He is looking for a true worshiper of God. You know what? He finds her. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what Jesus is doing in the world. Is what God the Father is doing in the world. He is looking for true worshipers. He is, as he says here in chapter 5, giving life. My Father gives life even to the dead. And likewise, the Son gives life to whomever he will. That's what he's doing right now. Pastor Aaron referred to God's divine rescue mission. That's what's happening. So, Jesus says to the, the, the official who's, who's just, you see the desperation. He comes to Jesus, please heal, heal my son. And Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. And he says, but all right, whatever. Please heal my boy. I mean, he's desperate. And Jesus does. From a distance. You know what he says in the Greek? Your son is alive. It's not your son will live. It's not future tense. It's your son lives right now. Because I said so. That's the kind of authority the son has to give life. Your son lives. Go home. And he believed the word of the son. He repeats it three times so John makes it clear. This is the point. 
Three times it said, your son will live, your son will live, or rather, the son lives, your boy lives, the son lives. Three times. Likewise, in the narrative that worked us before us in chapter 5, with the invalid who was asked to get up and walk, take home your bed. Three times it's repeated. Get up, walk, take home your bed. It's recounted three times to make the point. The son has the authority and the power to give life to whomever he wills, whenever he wants. That's the clear point of John's passage. Now, there is an application for us here in terms of our role in the work the son has given us to do. You guys have been going through the book of Acts. And I, and I, I find it very intriguing. The book of Acts begins with, you heard, Theophilus, in my previous volume, the Gospel of Luke, that I began to recount all that Jesus began to do and say. And the implication some have taken it to mean he is still doing and acting right now through the church. Does not the church act in the name of Christ? Does not the church have the authority of the very keys of the kingdom of God to act on behalf of Christ, to act in the name of the Father? We do. Here's the difference, though. You and I as sinners, we don't always act in the name of the Father. Jesus says, I I can't do anything except the Father first shows me. Nothing Jesus did, not one breath was taken outside of the express will of his Father. That's not true for you and me. Because we're sinners saved by grace. We're an imperfect picture, but a picture nevertheless. Likewise, there's really two areas in which we are quite different. We do not act from ourselves. The authority that we have isn't been given to us in ourselves, but is Christ's authority. We do have authority. Guys, think about the authority that we carry as the people of God. We have the authority to proclaim, your sins are forgiven. We can say that. It's called evangelism, right? We proclaim that the gospel says, if you repent and believe in the Son, you're forgiven. We have the authority to restore sinners who are broken by their sin just like us and to reconcile relationships with with God and with each other. When we sin against each other, we have the authority to oversee and to undertake a reconciliation process to renew lost, wandering sheep back to the fold. That's the authority of the shepherd himself that he's entrusted to the church. Can we abuse that authority? Yes. Because we are sinners saved by grace. We don't have that authority in ourselves. We act on behalf of another, and we are under always his authority and his discipline and rule. Secondly, we do not act for ourselves. Jesus says, all the signs I do speak of me. You and I don't say that. (laughs) Our signs are like Jesus' signs in that they speak of Jesus, not us. It's not about us. So in our deeds of love and mercy, in our prayers for healing, in our prayers that God would restore broken men and women that we think like the Samaritan woman, there's no way they will ever be true worshipers of God. But by his almighty power, they do become true worshipers of God. That is his authority and power, and it points to him. And that's the point of Jesus' statement. This is the one area in our text this morning where the Jewish leadership doesn't miss the point. 
Let's read it again. Jesus says there in chapter 5, verse 17, after they're grumbling about the fact that he's healing on the Sabbath, he says in 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 18, and this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath in their estimation, but he was even calling God the Father, God his own father, making himself equal with God. Well, there, they got the point. They didn't miss the point when Jesus said, my father works until now, and so do I, the son. You see, there was a debate going on in Judaism about whether or not God breaks the Sabbath. Does God keep his own law? That was a big debate. Because clearly, God's at work on the Sabbath day. Why? Because people are born and they die on the Sabbath. There's nothing that makes the Sabbath any different from any other day in terms of what goes on under heaven. And so, because the Jews rightly affirm that God is sovereign over every breath that's breathed, every life that's born, every death that happens, they said God is clearly at work in his providence, in his sovereign ruling and governing over creation. He is always at work. So does God break the Sabbath? They didn't know. They debated back and forth. And Jesus settles the debate. He says he works even now. And here's, the, here's what b- makes them so angry. And I, the son, have the same prerogative. As he says elsewhere in the Synoptic Gospels, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> That's why they were so mad. They didn't miss that point at all. He's like, my dad works on the Sabbath, and he takes me, and I'm the son. I'm taking up the father's trade. I'm working on the Sabbath just like dad. And they are irate because Jesus indeed was making himself equal to God. Do we understand who it is we're dealing with? (laughs) Do we understand who it is that's in our midst? Our hope isn't in Jesus' blessings. It's not in the gifts he can give us, but in Jesus himself. Look, The Galileans welcome Jesus back, as we saw in chapter 4. They're excited to have him back at home. But they they just want Jesus to perform another trick for them to see. They had the very eternal life of God among them. And they just want to be entertained. And are we all that different? The most wonderful person in the universe has drawn near to us. And he's invited you and me to share in his life and in his power. To know him personally. And honestly, we're more often in what he can do for us. Jesus says to us, I love you. So often we reply, yes, but what have you done for me lately? Perhaps one of the most significant ways that we avoid knowing Jesus personally is through our Christianity, through our very religion. Jesus' critique here of the religion of of the Jewish leadership, don't let that miss us. They sought diligently to study the scriptures. So do we. They thought that in studying the scriptures they would have life and grace. So do we. But Jesus rebukes them. Jesus says, don't you know that Moses wrote of me? 
If reading the scriptures don't bring you to me, not just knowledge about me, but bring you to me in a relationship, then you've missed the point. The Bible's about Jesus. That's what he says here in this passage. The scriptures are all about me. And if we don't get that, it doesn't matter how many PhDs we have in the New Testament, we've entirely missed the point. If our study of Scripture, and this applies to you and me both, I'm, as a, as a pastor and a preacher, I'm in the Word all the time, and I so often mistake Bible knowledge with maturity. I so often mistake the fact that I, I got to go to seminary. I had the privilege of reading some of the best minds on the Old Testament, New Testament, the history of the church. It's an amazing opportunity. And so many of us have mistaken that gift of knowledge, that gift of being able to learn and study with knowing Christ himself. They're not one and the same. They're certainly not opposed to each other. but We shouldn't confuse one with the other. If in our study of the Bible, you and I are not drawn into a deeper relationship with Christ, if there is not created in us a deeper sense of our desperate need for grace, if it doesn't break us, there's a reason why the author of Hebrews says the scriptures are a double-edged sword that pierces. If it doesn't pierce you and break you, you're doing it wrong, right? We're not reading it correctly we're missing the point it ought to break us over our sin it ought to expose not man i am so much smarter than that guy man our church has a much deeper preaching than the church down the street no let such preaching break us and humble us If it doesn't drive us to a deeper joy in the grace that Christ offers us, if it doesn't drive us to a greater delight in his unfathomable love that's past finding out, if it doesn't give us a more profound gratitude for his provision, then what is it doing? The point of studying the Bible is that it would develop in us an ever-growing and ever-thriving relationship with Jesus. Jesus says, you think in searching these, bo- these words, you have eternal life. But these words point to me. I'm life. I'm where life comes from. Now, these words are important words. These words are authoritative words. These words are divine words. These words have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. And by the Holy Spirit who's inspired them, the same person of the Trinity illuminates our dense minds and our hard hearts to get it. But life isn't found on these pages themselves. Don't miss the sign and confuse the sign with the signified. These words point to Christ himself who is living and who is here with us standing in our midst right now. So why do we do this? Why do we gather on Sunday mornings? Why do we gather in our small groups? Why do we have our daily devotionals? Why do we plant churches? Well, it better be for this reason, that we may know Jesus and others may know him. It's that simple. That we may know him more fully and introduce him to others. That we may walk with him 
and know him and be broken in his presence with a, a humble, deep, trembling joy. Here's the good news. Everybody missed the point. Everybody did. And in missing the point entirely, they abandoned, they betrayed, they rejected, they despised, they condemned and nailed their only hope for life and salvation to a cross. Ironically and mysteriously, that was God's point all along. God is able to get his point across even though it was missed by all. Jesus' greatest sign was the cross and the empty tomb. It was his last sign and wonder on the earth. And it still speaks. Or rather, he still speaks. Pointing to it, saying, when the Son of Man is lifted up, all who see it will live. Let us set our eyes there and know that he is here in our midst, speaking to us now in his word. Listen, he commands us. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and I will eat with him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray to you because you are equal with God. You have his authority. You have his power. You have life in yourself that you have given to us. Life that you have poured out on the cross that we might live. Lord Jesus, we need to hear your voice. We need to hear your word in our lives this morning and today. Lord, may your word penetrate our hard hearts. Lord, we ask, please speak. Please, Lord, speak and let us hear. Humble us in your presence that we may rejoice with an indestructible joy. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, as we continue to worship you in Christ's name. Amen.